Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. Well, this week we are watching and discussing Amy Heckerling's Clueless, a 1995 film starring Alicia Silverstone as Cher, a rich kid whose early successes at matchmaking make her think that she is someone who should matchmake her entire school. It's uh, it's set in uh, 1995 Beverly Hills. Is it Beverly Hills High that we're supposed to to assume that this is taking place at? I would imagine, although part of me thinks that is there any way that this is not a private school at all? Well, that, in fact, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was one of the things I was wondering. Like, are we to assume that all of the kids at this school are pretty well off or wealthy. I was running under that assumption there. I mean, there seem, there are class distinctions, but the class distinctions seem to be between the rich kids and the really rich kids. Right. Or the skater kids and the hip hop kids and the Valley, you know, like rich kid kids. Off the bat, I would say a few things. One is that I really like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I do too. I, I was excited to watch it again to see, you know, that's sort of the, the the litmus test is how something, quote, holds up over many, many years. And I thought it really, really held up. And there is not a ton of skateboarding in this film. There is 14 seconds of skateboarding in this movie. <laughs> um, but honestly, I do feel like like skateboarding does play a, a bit of a role in the plot, as opposed to Jane Austen's novel, Emma, which this movie is a loose adaptation of which featured no skateboarding. No skateboarding at all in uh, in Emma, which I was surprised at, you know, because I watched Emma as well. And at no point does Gwyneth Paltrow do any sick bonelesses. So, you know, it's, it's funny because when going back into the movie, I thought, how are we supposed to really feel a lot of empathy for any of these characters, considering that they're like supposed to be the, the you know, the children of super rich people. Once you settle into the, con- you know, the construct of the movie, that doesn't, draw your you know you you don't feel as though Cher isn't worthy of any respect or anything because she's a rich kid and I think that has to do with a few things I think um the leads in this movie are are very winning I think Alicia Silverstone is fantastic in this movie uh Paul Rudd as her kind of former stepbrother who she falls in love with with that's the one bit that I find kind of squeaky (laughs) I, I know they're not like blood related but they her dad was married to his mom at one point in the past. And I, I guess that's like a holdover from, from the whole Regency England thing, but I found that a little hard to handle, if you will. Even, even for me, I, I thought going back in to watch the movie that that was going to bother me a lot more. But the, I think the way that that, the, that relationship sort of plays out, they do at least a fair to middling job of making it not super creepy. I remember one of the first times Paul Rudd ever appeared on uh, The Daily Show. It wasn't in support of that movie. It had a couple of years had passed since he did it, but he made a a pretty funny reference to the fact that he's supposed to be like a 20-something-year-old college student who falls in love with his (laughs) 16-year-old stepsister. But because it's Paul Rudd, you, you love him for it. The dude is very likable. And very, very handsome. And 
somewhat unchanged from the way he looks now, which very is ageless. Yeah. Because Silverstone is right now playing the mom on the Netflix reboot of the babysitters club. Really? Yes. Which uh, I watched with my daughter and she's good in it, but she's not as good in it as she was in clueless or in Batman and Robin. <laughs> and the supporting cast is really good. I think, um, you know, the great Wallace Shawn as the debate teacher. You love to see him. I feel a little bad for Wallace Shawn. The dude probably can't even go to a Hardee's without someone shouting inconceivable at him. Yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things that's, I'm sure it's a blessing and a curse. You know, like not enough people are bringing up my dinner with Andre. Everyone bringing up, that would be inconceivable with a deep yeah. sizzling lisp. <laughs> Not, not that I have any knowledge that he patronizes Hardee's or not, but... Well, I think if you're Wallace Shawn, maybe you, you occasionally step into a Hardee's now and then. You know? You're at home anywhere. That's true. If you go to Hardee's or if you go to a five-star restaurant, someone's going to yell inconceivable at you. To not feel at home anywhere as Wallace Shawn, Kevin, truly would be inconceivable. And, we, just, uh, we just spent a lot of time on Wallace Shawn. <laughs> he's the man's a delight. He, he is absolutely lights up the screen. And another thing I like about this movie is what a weird 1995 time capsule it is. Yes. From the soundtrack. And as a brief aside, like the first song you hear in this movie is the Muffs uh, doing a cover of Kids in America. And it, it did make me sad all over again that we yes. lost Kim Shattuck last year last year and it was it was interesting to watch you know the clothes and the the styles of of everyone involved is put is pretty spot on you know speaking of the the skateboarding element the scene where the the skater kids are walking into the school and she does the voiceover about the way dudes dress that was deep in the heart of what skateboarding refers to now as the fun boy era or the goofy boy era and it was absolutely spot on like it that is a perfect perfect, perfect time capsule of what skateboarders were dressing like in 1995. And I think the interesting thing too, is that in a lot of these movies, when I watch them, I'm sort of like trying to keep note of, you know, what my reaction was to those things at the time versus what my reaction is now. And I remember thinking from my point of view, at least on the East coast, the quote fun boy era had kind of ran out of steam by that time and had been supplanted by kind of the, the raver look. But in LA, that was still, if you watch skateboard videos of the era in 1995, the, that, that look was still deeply in play. Well, it was also, there's also the scene like outside the party where I think a kid skateboards in front of Cher and the Brittany Murphy character and yes. like Cher shouts out like skateboard. That's like so five years ago. Which I don't, and I don't know if it was so five years ago in LA at the time, but I mean, the Cher character is proven to be clueless by the film's end. So she might not know about. By the very name of the movie, she is clueless. I, I think in LA in 1995, skateboarding was certainly not so five years ago. I think it was about as popular as it ever was. You know, like one of the first things that struck me skateboarding-wise in the film was that scene where she and her, her friend Dion are walking into the school and she like bats away the skateboard kids like they're flies. Like, like get away from me, skateboard kids. And one of the things I wanted to ask about you, I, I know you weren't in high school in the 1990s, but I do think there is something in this movie that kind of gets at what it's like to be a skateboard kid in a high school. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I graduated in 93. And it, 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 by 1993, I think that the skateboard kids or the, the, the punk rock kids had uh, a little bit more social standing, especially because sort of like Nirvana. 
Nirvana and hip hop had sort of found its way into skate culture. So there were more people skateboarding by the time I graduated from high school than certainly when I entered high school. And it was this very interesting sea change from being swatted away or shoved into lockers by by people higher up in the food chain. By 93, you were sort of, uh, there was a sort of a begrudging respect, I think at least. And by 95 in LA, I think that there was, there was a little bit more of a, of a, of a status, but to somebody like Cher and her group of friends, skateboarders were probably the lowest you could possibly be on the, on that, on that ladder. Now, do you think that was the times you think it was that thing? Like, I think when you're a senior in high school, people stop caring so much about those delineations so much because everyone's like, well, we're out of here soon. Who cares? I think that's astute. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think you're right. I have distinct memories of being a senior in high school and suddenly all those sort of perceived differences of, you know, of of people had sort of vanished and were replaced by, holy shit, we're seniors and we're about to get out of here. But I also think that the sea change in, in like alt rock culture, Nirvana, as you said, and, and all that stuff also sort of helped. Suddenly there were popular kids wearing Dr. Martens and listening to Pearl Jam. So now I remember it was, it was very weird because as a kid who like went to punk rock matinee shows in high school, to me, there was a very big sea change in how I interacted with people in high school before Nirvana and after Nirvana, just in terms of suddenly what I did was considered cool. Yeah, you st- I remember seeing kids at shows who we knew from high school who are suddenly at, you know, uh, this this will dovetail nicely. I remember seeing kind of like preppy, more popular kids at matinee shows featuring the Mighty Mighty Boss Toads. And then the Mighty Mighty Boss Toads appear on stage and on screen in the movie Clueless. So that's sort of an interesting leap forward. Yeah, and it's such a it's such like a limp performance. Oh, yeah, it's you had mentioned last week the Red Hot Chili Peppers scene in Thrash and like felt like a crazy punk rock show. It certainly did. And this Boston's performance in Clueless like everyone's just sort of like doing the hand jive or whatever. <laughs> I actually thought a lot about that too. Like, you know, where the reality meets that universe, you have to imagine, like, I, I'm not, I don't think that that was like a school dance, but you have to imagine if you're the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones in 1995 and you get hired to play at some Beverly Hills. I think like, it's like a college party. Is it a college? Like, I feel like by that, uh, you're, you're probably not hitting the stage with the same head of steam that you are you know playing the matinee show at, at club babyhead in 1993 no D- diggy barrett i think executes the limpest stage dive i've yes, ever seen at the yes. end of that performance it was also interesting because it's there seemed to be elements there of uh, do you remember when christian the christian character who share has a crush on for a while and he's yes. kind of into that whole rat pack neo swing thing yes and i remember when that started to to get big and i was i was not happy with it at all because before that there was some kind of cachet in being a doofus. Yes. And suddenly, like, between between the swing stuff and the rockabilly stuff, you, like, you were expected to be kind of handsome and put together. And I was like, <laughs> I can't play in those circles. <laughs> I certainly, I remember when that kind of hip cat swing rockabilly thing first started. I, I do remember thinking it was interesting that everybody had kind of a nice haircut. But that was, that was, that was sort of the beginning and end of my interest in that stuff. Yes. Yeah, it was all, I mean, it, it was interesting for me seeing the Boston's in this movie anyway, because I, they were a band I saw constantly in high school. They played, it seemed like they played once a month. Absolutely. And and the, this was 1995, so it wasn't that far removed 
I mean, this was before too their their big uh, never knock on wood song. Right. This was I think the was this the album before that? I think I think they had signed to a major, but they hadn't had their big hit yet. The one other really like '90s thing in this movie that at the time in the '90s annoyed me that is like immortalized in this movie are the goddamn Doctor Seuss hats. Oh man, the tie tops and the Doctor Seuss hats are rough. Oh, I hated I hated those Doctor Seuss hats. It was an interesting time. It was it was sort of this point where like you could see it happening, like hip hop culture and rave culture and hippie culture and skateboarding culture were all sort of like blending together. And a lot of times, it was the very worst elements of those things that <laughs> that found their way to the forefront. Well, you look at like rap metal, which came about a few years later, and it was like like I like rap and I like metal and I hate rap metal. Right. You don't always need to conflate two things together to 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 make them somehow better. Anyway, this is a great movie, but we're I guess we're here partly to talk about the skateboarding aspect of it. And that is mostly personified by the character of Travis Birkenstock, performed by... Breckenmeyer. Upon this viewing, I started to wonder if we were supposed to assume that Travis Birkenstock was the heir to the Birkenstock empire, or if that was just a... He was supposed to be sort of an amiable skater hippie kid. In my fan fiction, he is the heir to the Birkenstock Empire. Well, it just, it fits, doesn't it? In researching uh, for this very podcast, of course, the first thing I do is check, you know, who the stunt people are to see who were performing the skate tricks in the very short skate contest sequence in the movie. I found out that apparently Breckenmeyer was enough of a skateboarder himself that he was able to perform at least some of the the action in the sequence, he, it's a half-pipe skateboarding contest where you, you can sort of see where the cuts are, but apparently Breckenmeyer was good enough that he did drop in and do a couple of grinds and airs uh, so that they didn't have to have a stunt double. Uh, and apparently he broke his foot oh. in, in that scene. And that's why for the rest of the movie, you can see he's like sitting down a lot, which doesn't necessarily draw away from his character but there are a few more scenes after that where he's clearly sitting down and you have to imagine it's because he broke his foot the only other real name of uh any kind of consequence in the skateboarding world is uh one of the the stunt guys is uh named chet thomas who was originally on powell peralta which was the home of the bones brigade but was never turned pro for powell peralta and thusly never actually a member of the bones brigade he went on to uh found a, a skateboard company called dark star which uh is delightfully reviled to this day by most people in the in the skate community uh because of it's sort of like the company has no real identity and has some pretty cheesy graphics and a very sort of, you know, like disassociative skate team who don't really produce, you know, they, they, they were sort of the, one of the first people to jump to kind of a, the mall brand of skateboards where you can buy a full complete skateboard from like a zoomies in the mall. And the other thing that I found really interesting was another one of the skaters in the scene. I don't think he's actually skating was this LA guy who was a vision pro by the name of Kelly Rosencrans, whose name I had not thought of since the mid to late eighties. He was on vision and he had a part in a, in a skate video called barge at will it was one of those things where I actually like looked it up and he had a pro model that I absolutely remember seeing, but did not remember his, the, the existence of Kelly Rosencrantz 
at all. He was apparently for a while both a BMX rider and a skateboarder. I thought that was interesting because there's not a, usually not a lot of crossover in those two worlds. But yeah, the contest footage was was interesting. Again, I, 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 I look at a lot of this stuff and I think about how I reacted to it as the version of myself in 1995. And I remember thinking like, how relevant is half-pipe skateboarding in the world of skateboarding in 1995? But again, I think that's really has a lot to do with the fact that I was an East Coast kid who was 100% only into street skateboarding. Whereas in LA, I'm sure that it was half-pipe skating was still very much part of the culture. That's true. And I also think as delightful as the movie Clueless is, a veritable level of realism was not high on Amy Herkeling's list of priorities. Sure, when, yeah. You, when making this movie. You got the sense that they showed up at like a local YMCA with a half pipe with some cameras and we're like, okay, we got 45 minutes to make this happen. And in, you know, and, and in that way, I mean, it was realistic. You know, the skateboarding was real skateboarding. Yeah, to me, it was an interesting contrast with Herkeling's other big movie, Fast Times at Richmond High, which did feel more realistic i think it was because it was based on cameron crowe's actual experiences kind of infiltrating a high school john Cryer hiding out style but this one i think clueless is is more of a fantasy and taking such inspiration from the jane austen book and very smartly i think deciding that you know oh, the social mores of this small town in regency england you know maps pretty well onto the social mores and cliques of people's high school experience. I thought so too. I thought that they, that it was that these were kids who were supposed to be sort of couched in this sort of unattainable financial situation where you could, you could like relate in some ways to a, to a character like, you know, desperately trying to find the, the right outfit to wear. But then you also could kind of couldn't relate because she had this like early technology you know installed in her closet to help her pick outfits and stuff like that and i i thought it was like a good a good level of both of those relatable and also not relatable no and i mean people have been watching movies about the impossibly rich doing impossibly rich things forever i mean it goes back to like the thin man in the 30s to crazy rich asians a couple of years ago i mean it's just something that's done in movies that audiences seem to respond to right I think we like to imagine ourselves as having that access to that kind of wealth. Dude, if I could push a little button on a Atari 2600 that would tell me what outfit to wear, that would solve a lot of my problems. <laughs> so, a lot of your problems. A lot of them. Is, is outfit choices one of your uh, one of your one of your big bugaboos, Kevin? It's you know I wish I could be like a character in a comic strip and just wear the same thing every day. You know you can do that, Kevin. I do exactly that every day i follow my my father the venerable easy walt wally walter brusso's guide to fashion which is you just wear the same exact thing every single day no choices no problems i though i wonder if in that way how i would fare in uh beverly hills high in 1995 i think uh share might have some choice words for you or she might want to save you and give you a makeover Sure. I, you know what? I, I take it either way. One of the other things that I was sort of surprised by was the treatment of the characters in the movie sort of discovering that the hip cat swing dance guy was gay was not treated in a particularly cruel way, which I thought was interesting. And I think for the mid-90s was for its time kind of progressive. I remember, th- I remember watching the movie at the time and thinking that was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I remember that too, being like, even even Donald Faison's reaction 
as a as like a teenage boy he was more making fun of Cher for not knowing that he was gay more than the the fact that he was making fun of the character for being gay, which I thought was interesting. One of the things I like about this movie is that it has it has a lot of affection for its characters, and there aren't really any villains. Right. I think there's like the, there's conflict between kind of Cher's desire to be a better person and Cher's general cluelessness, but I like that most of the people in the film are basically well-meaning. I mean, Cher has her her high school rival, but they never do anything too terrible to each other aside from give each other mean looks. It's not like Tommy Hook breaking Corey's arm and thrashing. Certainly. And yeah, there's also the character of the, uh, the other law assistant who kind of loses his patience with Paul Rudd making googly eyes at Cher. But again, that's that almost, that's like the biggest conflict really in the movie. I also thought Brittany Murphy was excellent in it. You know what I mean? Her character is clearly sort of a, a fish out of water the scenes where she's sort of the most herself are actually really charming scenes. I think she's like a, a really sweet character. I mean, it, it's sad that we lost her because I think she could have done more. Certainly. And I'm trying to think if there's anything about this movie I don't like. It's, a, I mean, it's just, it's such a gosh darn likable movie. I... Yeah, it's very lighthearted, you know? And in the end, everybody ends up coupled off, which is, you know, what you want, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe this is my own failing. I think if I were to, you know, if I were to list, like, what I think the greatest movies of the 1990s are, I'm not sure this would be on that list, but I, I think this movie is fantastic. Yeah, me too. It's, it's definitely greatest movies of the 90s adjacent. So for next week, I believe we're going to watch Stoked, The Rise and Fall of Gator, the documentary by Helen Stickler. Excellent. That is uh, some... Uh... The dark side of professional skateboarding, Kevin. It's a sad, dark subject. Yeah, I know the last the last two episodes have been kind of light, so we'll see how how things how things go with something that's that doesn't really lend itself to lighthearted discussion. But it, I guess it'll be interesting to me anyway to find out how that goes. Um, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see y'all next week. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Our website is GleamingTheTube.net. We're on Facebook at GleamingTheTube, Twitter and Instagram at GleamTheTube, and our email is GleamingPod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime. (laughs) 